Hello, everyone. While I was gone yesterday, Micah is gone today. So while Micah got the privilege of preaching this text, I now get to critique his sermon in this week's Sermon Scraps. Just kidding. Uh, Micah did a great job handling the text. I actually have preached this text before, so I had sent him my manuscript, and after I listened to his message, I went back and looked at what, what I talked about when I preached, and there was a lot of overlap between uh, what, what I talked and got from this text and what Micah preached about yesterday. It is a joy to be able to go away and, and know um, that, that, that God's Word is still going to be proclaimed and taught, and, and uh, Micah does a really good job with that, so it's fun seeing him him use his gifts in that way as well. So there were just a few things that I wanted to uh, kind of double down on as far as what, what Micah talked about yesterday, uh, and just remind us of, of some of the implications that come out from the from this text itself. Um, so there's like some weird language, there's some debated issues and, and uh, things that have come up in this text, and uh, we will work through again here today. The first is in verse 20, which says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Now, Micah mentioned this, but that is some weird writing in, in uh, the original language. Like normally what you would think is like you learned of something. So uh, one of the things that, that most commentators are saying is that this is signifying the importance of us having a relationship with Christ. Like you, you get to know someone. This is more than just like learning facts or trivia about Jesus. It's actually engaging in a relationship with him. The other thing that a lot of the commentaries I read pointed out is verses 20 and 21 actually end up sounding very similar to a school with the verbs that Paul is using. So he's that that's not the way you learn Christ in verse 20 going on in 21, assuming that you have heard about him or taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So this, this is like a practical hands-on training that, that is taking place here. Now, uh, the way one of the ways that I, I generally like talking about this is, is uh, things are caught and they are taught. Uh, what that means is, is the things that we proclaim and say that we believe in, we should actually be matching up as, as best as we possibly can in our lives as well. Another way you may have heard this talked about is nature versus nurture, how much is inherent within us, uh, within us and how much just comes out because of the things that are encouraged or, or modeled or, or supported in our lives as we grow up. And all of those things are supposed to be true. So we're, we, uh, as much as caught, we should be setting an example for those who are less mature than us. But then teaching, we also need to ensure that we are teaching the things that are true. I think this is summarized really well in the Great Commission, where Jesus says to make disciples, that is like becoming an infant, a, a young believer in the faith, and then teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. The way that I have summarized that for us at South Suburban is making and maturing disciples of Jesus. That is a goal for every church and has been since Jesus. Jesus ascended into heaven. Another uh, passage that has brought up a considerable debate and discussion throughout history is verse 26, which says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's interesting because the, the phrasing that, that uh, Paul is using there is he's commanding to be angry. Like it's, it is an imperative, like you must be angry. Now, uh, he is quoting from Psalm chapter 4, which, which says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. So Paul is referring to a specific psalm there, but then it is also a command for us today. So how can one be angry and still not sin? Well, and Micah talked about this, there is a sense where there can be righteous anger. There's examples throughout the Old Testament where God is angry at sin in people. There's examples in the New Testament, and some of them are like we miss in some of the translations. Like there are things that come up where Jesus gets angry at the fallenness of the world that we're looking into. So like when Jesus looks out over Jerusalem, he gets angry at the reality that they're missing the spiritual implications of what is going on around him. Uh, but another piece that, that I think is important for us to, to be uh, thinking about in this angry passage is, are you angry at your sin? 
because we, we can be angry and aim it in a right direction. Um, and, and if we aim our anger towards our sin, it's going to change the way we approach and engage that. I think a wonderful uh, picture of this is in Luke 18, where it's the Pharisee and the tax collector, and, and Jesus talks about the way they pray. So listen to this, Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So if we turn our anger, instead of looking towards other people as this guy did, like, thank God I'm not like this tax collector. If we are like that tax collector and turn our anger internally against our own indwelling sin, that's what that's what Paul is commanding us to do here. And then one really brief note, I've heard people talk about, do not let the sun go down on your anger as, as um, a, a, like, legal truth. Um, and, and I believe that's more of a, a proverb than it is a, a command for us. So like Proverbs, uh, one of the most commonly quoted Proverbs that I've heard in parenting is train up a child in the way he or she should go. And when, when they were old, they will not depart from it. That is a proverb. That is a general true statement, but it doesn't always hold true. I think the same is true here. I think what Paul is getting at is be quick to, to seek reconciliation. Don't let that anger fester in your heart. If someone, if you are angry at someone, deal with it in, in short order. Like I, I, um, I remember reading a marriage book uh, as, as Kara and I were engaged that, that talked about this, this issue where like some people have made a rule that they will never go to bed angry at their spouse. But then like if you are getting just exhausted and you're not able to get any further in the conversation, just go to bed because um, there's a lot, a lot of issues and hurt and, and problems that can be solved with a good night of sleep. Um, so don't, don't let the issue just sit there, deal with it in a timely manner. But, but this isn't like a, a, uh, you, you can't go to bed unless you work through every single individual issue in your life. That's just a, a hopefully helpful common sense thing. The last thing that I wanted to talk about does, uh, take some, some more work. And that is verse 30 where it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Um, one note to this is because of the fact that we can grieve the Holy Spirit is one of the one of the evidences we have that the Holy Spirit is a person. Often when we think of the Holy Spirit, it's almost like this immaterial force, like almost like Star Wars. And this is one of those passages that tell us if we can grieve him, then he is a person with feelings just like you or I have. Now, I think personally this grieving the Holy Spirit actually connects back to verse 19, the callousness that Paul talks about. So verse 19, he's describing the Gentiles. They have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What that is doing is we are becoming callous to the to the softening of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Like the Bible uh, throughout the Old Testament, it's in, uh, I believe it's in Jeremiah uh, 31, where it talks about God replacing our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. But And yet that's both instantaneous in that we are saved at one moment, but then God slowly is, is replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And, and so that means that there's a lessening of the hardening of our hearts that is taking place and a softening to the things of God. And if we continue hardening our hearts, if we continue pursuing sin and our sinful tendencies, then we are going to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's also important to note that, that in context, like Paul is, is talking here in verse uh, 29, that no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to all who hear. Uh, this corrupting talk is referring to the way we engage with our community. 
Now, I think there's there's often a tendency that we just view our sin as affecting me, myself, and I, and it doesn't have anything to do with, with anyone else out there. And I think we have a tendency to miss that when we sin, it is grieving the Holy Spirit that is, is meant to bind us together in unity as the church. We also miss the spiritual reality that is taking place. When we sin, we, we are saying that our allegiance is with Satan, not with God. And so there's all these, these bigger pictures and ways that, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit that I think we just are uh, have a tendency to be unaware of. And specifically here, the way we grieve the Holy Spirit is by not pursuing community and, and unity in the things God has called and commanded us to be. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like verse 29 to me is, is really convicting for us in the church. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Is there ways that you that you are, are discouraging to people? Is there ways that you are belittling or undermining other believers who are seated nearby you? Um, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, had a sign in his kitchen, supposedly, that said, Whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. Um, I think that that is a good reminder for us that, that we should be encouraging and edifying to all our brothers and sisters, whether they're with us or not. Uh, D.A. Carson, in, in uh, one of his, his books, has the phrase, all of us would be wiser if we would resolve never to put people down except on our prayer lists. I just think of how much more uh, encouraging and unified we would be if, if we committed to that practice on a regular basis. Don't discourage, don't, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only talk that is going to build up and bring health and maturity and encouragement to our brothers and sisters. And we've seen throughout this, this epistle thus far, all of this is to be done in love. So that is uh, my thoughts on, on Ephesians 4. Uh, the second half of the chapter will be in Ephesians 5 this next week, looking at walking in love. I'm excited to dig into this text with you. Hope you all are having a wonderful week, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday morning.